Good morning, brethren, or should I say Hag seeing it is a festival, a happy festival to you. Uh, it's rather interesting coming to uh, services today on a Sunday uh, from maybe a different way than the song leader was mentioning earlier on. Normally on the Sabbath when we travel to Charlotte, we come up Sardis Road, and uh, the members of the Lubavitcher community are normally wandering back to their homes after morning services in the synagogue. Today, they were walking to services as we were coming to services as well. This is, in many ways, a very different Pentecost because on this particular year, both the Pharisaic and the Sadducean Pentecost occur on exactly the same day. Why is that? Well, because the first day of unleavened bread was a weekly Sabbath. And so both, you might say, both countings of the day of Pentecost start from the same period of time and end up 50 days later in exactly the same place. So uh, an interesting uh, consideration to bear in mind. Today is the 6th of Sivan, and... Uh, the Jewish communities are keeping Pentecost as well. Well, I certainly bring you greetings, greetings from the brethren in Kenya. Uh, they are very delighted to be part of Living Church of God and be brethren with you in the calling that we have together. And they send their greetings to you. Tradition establishes that the giving of the law at Mount Sinai was on the day of Pentecost. And the relationship of that event back in the 15th century before Christ, the relationship of that event to Pentecost is established very clearly, as Mr. Smith showed last week, by the common imagery that is employed in both Exodus 19 and Acts chapter 2. Great degree of that. I'd like to start this morning by returning to Exodus chapter 19 and focusing upon a point that Mr. Smith didn't cover. As, I, as he said afterwards, how do I have enough time to cover all these things? Well, we have other sermons, so we can cover them in other sermons as well. Exodus chapter 19, Israel is at Mount Sinai. And we find in verse 3 that Moses went up to God and the eternal called to him out of a mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Uh, he said, these are the words that you, you, he said, then you'll be a special treasure to me. Because he said, all peoples of the earth are mine, but you will be a special treasure to me. You will become a kingdom of priests. You become a nation of kings and priests to me. A very important point. Because the eternal establishes something very important there. 
all people are his. Ultimately speaking, all people will be his. Ultimately. It's a promise, you might say. We go across, of course, to Acts chapter 2. We find that on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all gathered together. And Mr. Smith read to you the details of what happened on the day of Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit was given. The Pentecost deals with a community that the Father is building through His Son, Jesus Christ. And verse 1 of Acts chapter 2 is not just the only point that refers to that community. We see them being all together in one place. Notice verse 10. We're actually breaking into the long list of peoples or nations from which people came. And you might say the the list of languages that were used by the Eternal on the day of Pentecost. We find in verse 10 it gives us a parenthetic statement. There were both Jews and proselytes in attendance in Jerusalem, which ultimately speaking says, There were Israelites and Gentiles because a proselyte was a Gentile who had become a Jew. They had converted to Judaism. But it goes on in verse 11, it talks about Cretans and Arabs. Not as though they are people from those lands, but they were people of that nationality. So one of the things we find in Acts chapter 2 is, you might say, a restatement of what we find in Exodus 19, especially verse 6, where the eternal is taking from all peoples to make a kingdom of priests for himself. For himself. The last verse of a chapter as well also speaks of that sense of a community that the Father was building on a grander scale. There was only a small number of them there at the beginning of a chapter. But by the time the day had finished and the baptisms had been completed, it would be interesting to work out how did they undertake all of those baptisms on that day. 3,000 people. We need some time and motion engineers here to work out the most effective way of ordering such baptisms. How much water did you need? Well, fortunately for them, there were a lot of mikvahs in Jerusalem at that time, ritual baths that could be used for baptizing these people. But it says in verse 42 of chapter 2, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done among the apostles. Now all who believed were together, had all things in common, they sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as everyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who should be saved. A restatement, you might say, of John chapter 6, verse 44. Those that the Father called. A wonderful statement about this community in Jerusalem. Something that we would aspire to being part of ourselves. It talks in verse 42 about how they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines or the apostles' teachings and fellowship. And I've mentioned this before, but let me mention it again. The word that is used in the New Testament for fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, is a noun. It's not a verb. It describes a state of being rather than action. That's an important point to consider. As a state of being, it has to be maintained. What you do to maintain it becomes the verb. But here we're talking about a state of fellowship, which is the most important. And the the same term is used throughout the uh, rest of the New Testament. You might talk about marriage. Marriage is a state. Like all states, it has to be maintained. If good behavior and good action is undertaken by the parties to the marriage, the marriage will succeed and last. But if people are negligent of their marriage and mindless of the needs of the marriage state, ultimately speaking, it will unravel and it will cease. Something of which we can be very much aware in terms of this world today. So this aspect of fellowship is very important. Another book deals with this aspect of community. And it's to that particular book that I'd like to refer today. Because this particular book provides a great deal of insight on what goes into community and how a community can be maintained and sustained so it is healthy and useful. The little book of Ruth, four chapters, is traditionally read in synagogues on this particular day. In the Hebrew Bible, it does not follow the book of Judges as we have it in our Bibles on our laps today, unless you're using somebody else's rendition of the Bible. And there are certain Bibles, the complete Jewish Bible for one, uh, has uh, the ordering of the scriptures in uh, the Jewish order, the Hebrew order. But we read the book of Ruth, and most of the commentaries you read, read the book of Ruth, and it's a followation from the book of Judges. Yes, it is linked to the time of the Judges, right in the very first verse of a chapter. But yet within the Hebrew Bible, it was elsewhere. It was removed from the time frame of uh, Judges and Samuel, and it was part of what was called the Festival Scroll, the books which were read at the great festival times throughout the year, the three times in which Israel had to come before the Eternal, together with the Book of Lamentations and Esther. 
And so the book of, of uh, Ruth has been read as part of the understanding of uh, Pentecost, and there are a great number of reasons for it. It's rather interesting because it starts talking about the hard times that existed in Judea in particular at that point in time. And I find it rather interesting that we're introduced to a man whose name is Elimelech, if we were to use it in English, but it really is Eli Malik. It's a combination of two words, Eli, which means my God, and Malik, as it's presented in the Hebrew, is king. So my God is king. A rather interesting disjunction from the end of the book of Judges, right? Because the end of the book of Judges says there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And almost the book of Ruth confirms that because what does Eli Malik do? He leaves Judah. So the one guy who had a king left and went to Moab and died together with his two sons. And we are very much perhaps aware of the, the uh, situation. They left because of a famine. And one has to ask, why was a famine? I think we can cast our mind back to Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, to realize that a famine occurred primarily because the people weren't in a covenant relationship. Something had gone wrong with the community. What was needed for that community to flourish had been neglected. And the result was famine. And the one man who you might say, at least name-wise, looked to the God as king, left the country. And I think it's important to make the, make the point that that concluding verse of Judges, there was no king in Israel in those days, or in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, has nothing to do with the ultimate desire in Samuel of Israel wanting a king. It is a spiritual statement about the state of the Israelites in the fact that they had forgotten who their king really was. They've forgotten that. And so we are introduced to a situation where because of neglect, the community has come undone. Problem for it. And so Eli Malik and his wife Naomi and sons Malon and Chilion leave and go to Moab. We don't know why, what the cause of going there was, but we know that Eli Malik and his two sons die. The sons had taken wives of the daughters of Moab, Ruth and Orpha, and uh, we have, you might say, a nice family community of its own suddenly falls apart. And being a widow in that time and that part of the world was not the best calling. 
being a widow was to be marginalized. You could be taken advantage of. You had nothing. A very, very difficult time. I know the same thing occurs, for instance, in the likes of Kenya these days. Because oftentimes a woman has no right to any possessions of her husband. Her sons, or maybe if he had more than one wife, which is not uncommon, his other sons will want the land and the widow can be left out on the street, marginalized in society. So spending time in a place like Kenya helps you appreciate the challenges that people faced, people like Naomi faced. There's no support system for her. There's no community. But then we're introduced to the fact that God has revisited Israel. And the crops are now flourishing. Something had changed in Bethlehem, where they came from. There obviously had been a return to the community by at least some considerable part of that tribe, and the result was blessings. And the book of Ruth makes no compunction about where the blessings come from. God had revisited his people. He remembered them. And maybe it wasn't so much the righteousness of the people that was the motivating factor as much as another factor which will be brought out in the book of Ruth. The eternal's character, his hesed, his loving kindness or his graciousness towards his people. But having heard of it, Naomi then resolves to return home. And she suggests to the daughters or her daughters-in-law, should I say, that they stay in Moab. You're Moabites. You can go back to your father's home. You're young enough. You could have another husband from the tribe of Moab. And we come down to verse 14. We see what is involved in this separation between Naomi and the two daughters-in-law, Orpha and Ruth. Verse 14 having had this idea suggested to them, it said they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Arthur kissed her mother-in-law. Not, not a romantic kiss. This was, you might say, a mark of farewell, as it may be a sign of greeting. She kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Naomi said, Look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She's gone back to her old way of life. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my gods. I have rejected the gods of my family. I am 
accepting your God. And so it continues his wonderful uh, uh, statement by Ruth, wherever you die, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The eternal do so to me and more also if anything, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. It's rather interesting just to give you an idea of the intensity of this. Back in verse 14, Arthur kissed Naomi farewell. It said Ruth clung to her. The same word is used there that is used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where a husband and wife are supposed to cleave to one another and become one flesh. Now, of course, the tense, the, the uh, tense in the Hebrew is different because this was completed, whereas in the uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, it's uncompleted. That's what you're supposed to do. So it's sort of ongoing. But here we have an interesting graphic portrayal of the sense that Ruth had taken in terms of Naomi. Think of it in terms of a marriage relationship, in terms of commitment. Very important. She clung to her. She cleaved to her. And what we find here in terms of Ruth is that Ruth is really taking a personal exodus. She is involved in something which is as great as the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Or Abraham, or Abram, leaving Haran, or Ur of the Chaldees, to go to the place that the Eternal commanded. So she's having a personal exodus. Just like each and every one of us have had to make a personal exodus. We had to come to that point of saying, I am rejecting the gods that exist around me, that I have worshipped, and I am clinging. I am cleaving myself to the God of Israel, to the true God. And I want to have a relationship with him which is inseparable. Very important for us to consider. She sets an example by her personal fealty that she swore to Naomi and more more so the God of Naomi. Very important. So Ruth is not going to turn back. The Hebrew verb shuv is used nine times in this first chapter. And then again in chapter 2 and 4 relating to Ruth's action. The word shuv in Hebrew or teshuva talks about repentance. But it talks about repentance in a very specific way. It talks about a covenant relationship. It talks about the action of Israel in returning to the covenant relationship. And so you read through the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah uses this term frequently. 
where he talks about turn again. Come back to that covenant relationship. We have the, you might say, the foundation of what we talk about of repentance in the New Testament. She wasn't going back to her old way of life. She was putting her way of life behind her. And she wanted to attain to something new. And of course, the start of a community relationship is repentance. And of course, repentance isn't a one-off event. It's a continuing process through which we go. As we come to see the ways in which the gods of this world have had holds on us or had claims to us. And as we reject those and we grow and we develop in terms of God's understanding. And so this aspect of the repentance, of shuv, of turning, becomes very important in terms of entering a relationship, a covenant relationship with the eternal. For Naomi, it was a return. So we're really talking about the repentance of Naomi as well, aren't we? For Ruth, it was an acceptance of the God of Israel in entering into that covenant relationship. And of course, Acts chapter 2 talks about this very well for us also. Because in, in verse 37 of chapter 2, they heard Peter's sermon and they were cut to the heart. Being cut to the heart is not a good condition for the human body. If you want to know about it, just talk to Mrs. Whitfield. Being cut to the heart, ultimately speaking, can be fatal unless something is done. And of course, Mr. Whitfield will be in intensive care probably for several days while they monitor him, stabilize him, and so forth. As you heard in the announcements, our prayers are very much appreciated. These people were cut to the heart. Rather interesting, the verb that is used here of cut to the heart is related to the verb that is used in John 19, where the soldier took a spear and thrust it into uh, Jesus' body. So you get a almost as though there is a connection here between the death of Christ on the one hand and what is involved in repentance in terms of happening to us. We are dying to ourselves. And it's not just the waters of baptism and being buried. We die because we get rid of our old heart. And we want a, a, a heart transplant, a godly heart. So they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? What is to be done? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we see in the action of Naomi firstly and then especially of Ruth is a sort of an echo of what we're going to see vividly here, excuse me, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It said, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the eternal our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved 
from this perverse generation. And if that was a perverse generation, how do we describe today's generation? It, does the English language convey a word or contain a word that could convey the stench and uh, nausea that the eternal sees in terms of today's generation? An interesting point for us to consider. And so uh, there were 3,000 people baptized that day. Right, so uh, we talk about repentance, the starting point, and a continuing feature of maintaining the life of the community. Very important. It's interesting because having talked about Ruth, it's worthwhile focusing a little on Naomi. Because a little later in the chapter, it talks about Naomi and how she sees herself. She had a lovely name. Pleasant. That's what Naomi means. People had names in those days that have meaning. Today people get names and they mean very little. If anything to people. And she said, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara which is bitter. She realized there'd been a disjunction in her relationship with the eternal. Something had gone wrong in her life because she was no longer part of that community. And as long as she remained in that situation, she couldn't be called pleasant because pleasantness was a feature of a community. Being outside was horrible. It was bitter. And so she asked to be called bitter. She uses the name there of the god Shaddai. Al Shaddai. A name which refers to the eternal sufficiency to take care of our needs. She realized she lacked something. She wasn't being given what was necessary to be part of that community. She was outside of it. Rather interestingly, in terms of the uh, language that's used there at the end of chapter 1, it's very legal because the covenant relationship was a legal relationship. She used terms like you testify against me. But what was the important point in terms of Naomi? She accepted the correction. The fact is we all need correction. We all need our outlook refocusing from time to time. We come to see things about ourselves which are not godly. And we have to change those things. So to be remain part of a community requires repentance on an ongoing, continuing basis. So we don't just sit back and think, we've got it made. No, that's not the case at all. We need to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Repentance is a continuing process for us. So we have here a foreshadowing of what we've already read in the book of Acts with both Israelites and Gentiles returning to 
or entering into a true covenant relationship with God. And so there was a restoring of a relationship that had been broken since Genesis chapter 13, when Lot left Abram, because Ruth was a daughter of Moab, and she became part of Abraham's descendants again. She came into that relationship again. The time setting, of course, is given to us very clearly in terms of the time of the year. We don't know what year it particularly occurred in during the time of the judges. That's immaterial. Various people has a guesses and try and locate some of the identities of the people and the judges with the book of Ruth. We don't need to go there today. But the time of the year is very instructive because they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Bethlehem, house of bread, at the start of the barley harvest. And what start of the barley harvest? The wave sheaf offering. And when did the wave sheaf offering occur? It occurred following the Passover, following the Sabbath, during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Right? So the timing for this is very instructive. It's in terms of the Days of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. So they arrive in Bethlehem just after the Passover and the waving of the uh, wave sheaf offering. It's interesting in verse 22, it says, so in the, the New King James, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of a barley harvest. Interestingly, if you uh, read some of the other translations, Young's literal translation, rather interesting here, it said, Naomi turned back. So it's really trying to emphasize what the word shuv means. She turned back. She turned back to that covenant relationship. And Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who hath turned, who has shuved, so to speak, back from the fields of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the time of the uh, barley harvest. The end of chapter 2, we find the time setting, the limit of the time setting, you might say, of the early part of the book. Verse 23, chapter 2. She stayed close by the young woman of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. In other words, this first two of verse Second chapter, let's say, put it that way. The second chapter encapsulates the time from unleavened bread till today, Pentecost. Because this was the time when the wheat harvest had finished. And people were able to come before the eternal. They were able to bring their offerings as a result of a way in which the eternal blessed them with the harvest and so forth. So the short interval, the seven weeks between Passover, followed by the offering of the wave sheaf, and then the time of Pentecost. So a very well-established fact. 
Interestingly, we find the people were glad to see Ruth return, or Naomi return. Of course, Ruth was uh, unknown at that point. The people in uh, Bethlehem had obviously returned to the sense of community. There's a willingness to accept this person back in and uh, make them part of a community, despite Naomi's personal situation and the loss that she'd suffer. You might say, compare that with the uh, account of the prodigal son. The brother wasn't really in a sense of community, was he? The father wanted to establish a community and welcome his son back into that community. And this willingness to reach out to others is really, you might say, the start of a community. If we're repentance, what do we do? We envelop people. We take them in. We make them part of us in a very point, a very important way. Chapter 2 also talks about, you might say, the community in action. We have the harvest field. And this, once again, ties into Pentecost. Because... What is provided in Leviticus chapter 23, we have the details for counting the day of Pentecost, and then, of course, what offerings had to be made on Pentecost, and then added to that in verse 22 was a statement about working in the harvest field, how you want to harvest corners of the field. You want to glean the uh, what you dropped. You would leave that for the poor. And so even the statement about Pentecost as a holy day talks about the way in which a community works together. There is care for the other person. The eternal doesn't tell us how big the corner of the field is to be. Now, of course, we've gotten away from that so totally today. We don't plant the corners of our field because you can't get a tractor and plower into the corners of the field. Or if you do, it takes up too much time, but what are you going to get out of it? So it's not economic. And if you did, and you sowed corn in the corner of your field, you couldn't get a combine into it either. So we don't do it these days. And we lose sight of one of the important lessons that the Eternal was trying to teach us. The fact that you have to take care of one another. You who have much have to take care of those who have little. In other words, there was a community here that had a provision, a godly provision for taking care of widows, realizing the needs that widows might have and providing for them so that they would not be thrown out. So the provisions for maintenance of the community. There was a welfare system, Boaz had to leave stuff in his field. But the poor also had to go and work in the fields and collect it. I found, I first went to Israel in 1972. I found that on the date there were a number of uh, pensioners. And I found out that to get a pension in Israel or to get some form of uh, handout from the government, you had to be involved in some public work. And so a number of these elderly men and so forth were involved in helping with the dig. 
a form of public work. So they were getting something from the government. They had to put something into it as well. The same thing was true here. Unlike our Western societies today, where you don't want to work, you can go and get uh, the doll, or whatever it may be called in various parts of the world. Of course, there was no limit to how we care for others. As I said, the Eternal didn't tell us how big the corner of the field had to be that was left. One square foot, two square foot, square yard, half a yard. It's a little like the Holy Day offerings, isn't it? Because it now becomes a question of our state of mind. For whom do I exist? Myself or the community? Ah. So here, those who had much could be liberal. As the book of Proverbs says, the person who is liberal brings in much. They learn to give. And the eternal rewards them as a result in a very powerful way. And of course, the poor had to work. And it would have been hard work out there in those hot fields uh, working on that way. You might say what we have here is a very descriptive aspect of God's law and operation rather than a prescriptive. Descriptive versus prescriptive. And uh, very important for us to realize that because God does want us to look at what he really intends in terms of his law rather than just a, uh, you might say, mechanical keeping of his law. What am I supposed to learn from it? Learn generosity in a very profound way. So it is a harvest field that is being talked about. And, of course, Pentecost looks back on that harvest period of time. There are two harvests referred to in Scripture. We have the present time, the here and now. You might make, like to make a note of uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, where Jesus Christ said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. And the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send forth, send out laborers into the harvest. Or John chapter 4, where he talked to the disciples yet again in verse 35 and said, aren't there four months, then comes the harvest? He said, yet, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. They're ripe. They're ready to be harvested. So there is a harvest to be undertaken at this point in time of which you and I see a role a part of what motivates us the need to be involved in that harvest firstly preaching the gospel following up as God calls people to that and making them part of the community bringing them in helping them grow as part of a community and of course the Second harvest is at the time of Christ's return, and we find parables given to that. Uh, we find Matthew chapter 13 and verses 30 through 39. He talks about the harvest at the end of the age after his return. We find Revelation 14 and verse 15. The angel coming out of a temple 
calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The time of return of Jesus Christ. Well, of course, that of the present time, the first harvest, equates with the first fruits of the first fruits harvest, the festival of the first fruits, one of the other names that is given to the day of Pentecost. The harvest that Ruth was involved in was part of that Naomi received the benefits from. And so we find a number of scriptures that talk about that as well. James chapter 1 verse 18 where it talks about us being called forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his, of his creatures. Uh, Paul talked to the church in Rome, Rome 16 verse 5, about how they were the firstfruits, and so forth. So the aspect of firstfruits becomes very important. So the book of Ruth speaks very much about where we are now in terms of God's harvest. The first harvest is not talking about the second harvest. Obviously, principles from it that can be learned will be applicable in the second harvest. But firstly, we have to apply them ourselves at this point. Let's spend a little time dealing with the characters in the uh, book of Ruth. Obviously, Ruth herself becomes very important And it's amazing how quickly people become aware of her commitment. So Boaz is introduced to her in chapter 2, and he speaks glowingly about how she's taking care of her mother-in-law. In many ways, what we find in terms of Ruth's commitment is a restatement or is restated by Jesus Christ in John chapter 13, verse 34. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you love one another. Ruth's character was established by the way in which she took care of the other members of the community. Interesting point to consider. She's a great example of what Jesus Christ said. Her reputation was built on her commitment, not her past. You can read what Boaz said in in, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 through 12. She she wasn't, well, you're that strange Moabitess who Naomi dragged back here. We don't know what you're doing here. No, that's, that's not the way in which she's defined. What she is defined by is her spiritual qualities, so to speak. We can use that expression. She is defined by her actions towards others, just as Jesus Christ desired. It's interesting if you read through the book. Ruth starts off being referred to as a Moabitish or Moabite girl or a Moabitess. She gets referred to by Naomi as a daughter-in-law and then becomes daughter. But most importantly, we find by the time we get to chapter 3, 
that she is called exactly the same word that we find in Proverbs 31, verse 10. She is known as a virtuous woman. What better accolade could a person be known by? In other words, it was her character, not her past, that defined her. I had an interesting occasion during Unleavened Bread. I was speaking in a particular church, and Ephraim Abak, who is one of our area pastors, was there, and I have known Ephraim Abak since I think I first met him in 2000, so I've known him 15 and a half years. I've known him more intimately uh, over the last 10 years. But I, I was talking about something in my sermon, and I said, Ephraim Abach and I are brothers. I said, we have the same father. And an absolute look of shock of the part of the, of the, part of the uh, uh, congregation. Why? Because they're thinking about our pasts. You know, the only similarity between Ephraim Abak and myself is about our height. He has a, a graying beard. He lacks a paunch. And he is a member of an elitic tribe. So he is very dark-skinned compared with my pale skin. And, of course, anyone who's focused on our past would say, Hey, you can't have the same father. Impossible. Actually, we've got the same mother, too. But I was talking about where we are. We have the same spirit, the same begettle of the same heavenly father. And we're both being nurtured by the same body, the church. And we're going to be, God willing, sons of God. We're going to be members of that family. Of course, I was trying to describe our present relationship to the brethren, and they took it purely in the past. And it was an absolute shock to them. But, of course, eventually they came to understand. But we do. We, we tend to live in the past. Who is someone? person is defined by their past. A community is defined by the spiritual status of the individual's. Most important. And of course, if one has God's Holy Spirit, then that should be producing fruits within our life that are going to be the defining of us as individuals or as part of that community, just as they were for Ruth. And it doesn't matter what a name means in, in, uh, in Moabite language or what it means in Hebrew. What really is the important thing about her is the spiritual character that she provided. And of course we find uh, various elements used uh, to describe her character. Uh, Ruth is described as being one who has shown loving kindness or chesed, this godly quality of character in a remarkable way. How she came to do that, we're not told. But we're to learn from the fact that she showed godly character in her life. You and I have been given the opportunity to develop godly character within our life through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. 
if we're going to be part of that continuing community, we have to make sure that those fruits continue to be produced. And so uh, Ruth is referred to various ways, ultimately speaking, by her character. It's interesting as well, her commitment was described as being she had come to reside under the wings of the God of Israel. And so you have a reference to Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is thy kindness, O eternal, O God. How precious is your chesed, O God. And the sons of men in the shadow of your wings do trust. Ruth was in that situation. Psalm 91 and verse 1 is one of those wonderful psalms. It's been set to music. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Absolutely wonderful statement. Ruth was there. As such, she was part of that community. I will say to the Eternal, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him I will trust. Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He'll cover you with His feathers. And under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And you won't be afraid by anything. These were ways in which Ruth was defined by those she came to contact with in Bethlehem. What about Boaz? Important individual. Appears in uh, three of the chapters. A relative of Naomi. And a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, we're told. And verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. And so we find that he, uh, or rather Ruth, went to glean in a field after the reapers. And she happened to come on the part of a field belonging to Boaz, who was a clan of Elimelech. So he was a, a relative. And then we have this lovely little expression. And behold, uh, obviously the way in which it's expressed indicates, oh, God is intervening here. Something's happening here that is controlled by a sea, a hand, outside the stage. The internal is intervening in events. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So this may have been an unusual event, or maybe he had so many fields to go to that uh, it would have been an unusual event. And so he said the, uh, to the reapers, the eternal be with you. And they answered, the eternal bless you. There's no uh, scurrilous accusations flying between people here. They saw one another in terms of the eternal. Sounds like a pretty good community uh, relationship, isn't it? The way in which we like to greet one another on the Sabbath day or on the holy days. We're delighted to see one another again. And uh, Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge answered, she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and continued from early morning until now, except for a short break. Boaz said to the Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they're reaping and go after them. And he talks about the way in which he's instructed the young man to let her have water to drink and so forth. Ruth, not wanting to take anything for granted, fell on her face, bowing to the earth and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Oh, yes, she saw herself. She didn't have any great self-pretenses. She wasn't elevating herself in any way. There was no pride or vanity in terms of Ruth. Important. Because godliness doesn't support pride and vanity, does it? It's the antithesis. So we find that uh, Boaz, as the lord of a harvest, is able to provide for uh, uh, Ruth's well-being. And we find in verse 9, verse 14, the mealtime rather, and another important aspect of Boaz comes out. He is a sustainer. He sustains these people. At mealtime, verse 14, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, he passed her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. What did you do with it? Throw it up with the birds? No, apparently wrapped it up, took it home to mum-in-law, to Naomi. Thinking of the needs of others, a very important aspect. So Boaz was a sustainer of his community. He worked, employed these people, allowed others to come in and glean in a godly manner. And we can go through, you can read the instructions that he gives where he tells the reapers, well, leave a sheep for her. Hey, this isn't just following the direct command of not going back into the field to leave, get a, leave, a sheep that was left behind. He said, leave something for her. In other words, great generosity on his part. And generosity is an important aspect in terms of our relationships with one another within the community. He was a sustainer in many ways, just as Jesus Christ is our sustainer. John chapter 6 and verse 28. Here we have a follow-on from the feeding of the 5,000. And, of course, people have been impressed by Christ being able to feed all of these people with five loaves and five fish and seven loaves, as the case was. Verse 28, he said, uh, said to them, well, they said to him, the, the religious leaders said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. See, Jesus Christ is the sustainer of a community. He has what is necessary to strengthen the community, to sustain the community. You might read in verse 50 a little more of that uh, um, teaching of Jesus. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of his bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so, brethren, the right inputs of food and drink are essential to the sustaining the fellowship to which we've been called. Another element about uh, Boaz. Boaz was a redeemer. One of the words that's used frequently in chapters 3 and 4 is the word goel, which is translated redeemer. What's involved in redeeming? And what did redeeming do? Well, of course, it continued the name of Elimelech. It's most interesting, isn't it? Ah, the idea of God being king is sustained within this community. It's not lost forever. And so Elimelech's name is reestablished within the community. Why? Because Boaz redeemed the land from where it had been sold so that Naomi had land again. And not only did he redeem the land before the Jubilee, but he also had to take the hand of Ruth to be his wife to raise up a seed for Elimelech's name. Why is it that David is referred to as a man after God's own heart? Was it because he really appreciated the name of one of his great-grandfathers, Eli Malik? God is my king. Very easy, isn't it, when you're king to think you're it? You've read enough history to realize that kings think that they are unstoppable. Whatever their demand is will be fulfilled. But David was a man after God's own heart. He realized that he may have been king at a physical level, but he had a greater king above him still, the eternal God. So we sing his psalms, don't we? About how he looked upon the ways of God. Quite remarkable. Stop and consider that. Because in the days of absolute kings, such a sense of trust on something or someone else was almost unheard of. You just need to read the lives and the statements of some of the other kings of of Babylonia. Well, read Daniel chapter 4 and read what Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself. He didn't invent it. Ego didn't arrive on the world scene with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. 
It had, it had infested every king of Babylonia, Assyria, the Arameans, whoever else you might want to consider beforehand. The pharaohs of Egypt, they all thought they were it. David realized he had a king, the eternal God. And so the aspect of redeeming becomes very important because it reestablishes this idea that the eternal God, my God, is king. People are following his laws, doing things his way. And of course, out of that, we have a number of aspects. There are at least three levels of redemption dealt with here in the book of Ruth. Obviously, personally, we have at the first level, Ruth and Naomi being redeemed. Naomi is now no longer a marginalized widow. She is now a woman with a grandchild, with a daughter, with a framework of community in which she can exist. She's not, so to speak, on the streets. She is taken care of. And she's blessed because she's got someone to take care of, right? Called Obed, son of Boaz and Ruth. So at a personal level, Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. But then we go beyond that, don't we? Because where do we end up? Nationally, the nation becomes redeemed as well because there is a king to be born to rule. David, a type of the Messiah, the type, of the, the type of the being that we look forward to returning in power and glory, and whose death and resurrection enabled us to be here at this time. And so there was a national aspect. A king was being born to rule. But there's also an end time element as well of this, the eschatological time. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 9, unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the kingdoms of this world will be upon his shoulders. It goes on and talks about it in very dramatic ways, wonderful ways. We look forward to the establishment of a kingdom of God, right? We're here today working to that end. And that happened as a result of redemption being played out here in this particular chapter. I started by reading to you Exodus chapter 19. And let me read to you verse 5 and 6 again. He said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be a special treasure to me. Above all the people of the earth, you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God wants us to be a special people. He wants us to be part of that community. Being part of the eternal special treasure means that we are in fellowship, koinonia. How do we become part of that fellowship and maintain that relationship? The book of Ruth sets out some wonderful practical examples of how we go about it, starting with repentance. 
and continuing repentance. You and I have been given the gift of God's Holy Spirit to make that possible. I think it's appropriate to consider concluding, looking at Psalm 105. Psalm 105, and uh, we find this is also listed for us in First Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 through 36. So Psalm 105 and First Chronicles 16, where it says, Sing to the eternal all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Not just all Israel, but all peoples. In other words, the responsibility is to take the gospel to the world. For great is the eternal and greatly to be praised, and he is to be held in awe above all gods. Think of some of these things in terms of Ruth's choices compared with Orpha. Orpha chose to go back to the gods of Moab. Ruth chose the God of Israel, the singular God of Israel. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the eternal made the heavens. Mr. McNair talked about Abraham yesterday, and I, I just had to translate something, a bit of rabbinic writings in Aramaic about Abraham the other day. And uh, it talked about Terah. And uh, basically it said that Terah was a maker of idols. And one day he went away and he left Abraham in charge of a shop. And someone came in to buy an idol. And Abraham said, how old are you? And he said, 50 years of age. And he said, what's a 50-year-old man got to do with an idol that was made yesterday? You know more than him. And, of course, the man then sheepishly stole out of a shop. Obviously, went to another idol maker. Of course, uh, when his father came home, he was most upset about it. And uh, Abraham was no longer left in charge of a shop. But obviously, uh, an interesting little uh, uh, idea, probably fictional idea, about Abraham and his father, but con con conveying a very important point. Idols are useless, absolutely useless. And the book of Jeremiah talks about that very well. You know, other prophets as well. All the gods of a people are idols, but the eternal made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the eternal, O clans of the people, ascribe to the eternal glory and strength. Ascribe to the eternal the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the eternal in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the, worth, the earth is established. It will never be moved. And so it goes on and talks about the heavens rejoicing, the seas, seas roaring. We have the great privilege of being able to keep God's day of Pentecost, to learn from God's word what is involved in us becoming part of that true community of God, becoming that treasured people 
that the Eternal spoke to Moses about in Exodus chapter 19. Hag everyone.